Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is uh, Scott Eaton. He's the CEO of a company called Algomi. It's A-L-G-O-M-I, and that's the website, algomi.com. Scott, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell me um, a little bit about Algomi. What's the premise of the company? Well, so Algomi is a software company uh, that provides technology to financial markets um, to improve uh really buy-side workflow and liquidity by data aggregation, pre-trade information analysis, and execution facilitation. So through through our understanding of financial markets and experience of workflow development, we collaborate with our clients and third-party providers to create that facilitate market function. Um, additionally, the company acts as a utility, bringing infrastructure to some of the world's largest fixed-income participants to help them turn complex data into actionable knowledge. So we enable investors and liquidity providers to trade with increased speed, greater efficiency, and hopefully at lower cost. So we view ourselves as a market-neutral system provider using our expertise in technology facilitation to improve liquidity and efficiency in the market. Um, We were founded in 2012. We're headquartered in London, but we have offices in New York and Hong Kong. And I would argue that uh, one of our big strengths is an is that um, we have investment from some of the biggest players in the market, so Alliance, Bernstein, Euroclear, Euronext, and S&P Global. So that's the, that's the brief synopsis of who we are and what we do. All right. Well, yeah, I heard a bunch of things that you say you do. Um, what, what about some specifics? You know, so if I'm an individual trader or is this, is this more for like institutional trading houses, you know, what specific use cases uh, do I use your software for? Sure. Um, in fact, it, it really, I guess maybe the best way to describe it is how we started and then where we are today. So we started really um, in 2012 with a pretty novel concept, which was that there was a bunch of actionable information which was occurring on um, bank trading floors, fixed income trading floors at large sell side institutions, but that a bunch of that information wasn't being captured and wasn't really um, being made actionable by the traders and salespeople on those large sell-side firms. Um, So it was also intended to address the fact that um, those banks needed to turn over their balance sheets much much quicker in the days post-financial crisis. So the, the first product we came up with was something called Synchronicity, and it was really about trying to capture that information make it easy to put into a database and then tie that database to the existing positions that that bank held on its trading books. Um, It was a great idea. It was um, sold on a subscription basis to a bunch of sell-side banks. However, what what was discovered was that some of that information wasn't, wasn't being captured because it required workflow changes and behavior modifications by a bunch of um, fixed income salespeople. And having spent most of my life on a fixed income trading floor, I can tell you that nobody changes easily. So we <clears throat> we then tried to address some of that by creating another product, which was more for the buy side called Honeycomb. And that was really designed to try to 
share some of the information which was occurring at the buy side, and in essence create a heat map together with the synchronicity sell side product, which would point uh, buy side execution traders in the right direction as to where um, a bank might be active in a particular bond. The interesting thing about that was the concept was fabulous. The execution turned out to to be a little bit difficult because it required a bunch of reliance on other parties, and that just isn't a particularly good way to to go about growing a business. But the technology was sound and the concept was sound. So we then moved to the current iteration of Algamy, and it's a product which we bought from Alliance Bernstein called Alpha. And Alpha is a data aggregation tool for a buy-side execution trader, first and foremost, and it enables them to see liquidity where it occurs in the bond market. So a really simple example is um, most buy-side traders at large firms have a bunch of different data sources for prices of bonds so they can get it they get prices on their bloomberg they get prices direct from their various dealer banks they may get it by subscribing to some of the trading platforms so market access or trade web um the problem is it, that you can't view all those different sources at the same time so our tool algamy alpha effectively captures all that information in real time cleans it and makes it searchable and able to visualize for the buy side trader. Oh, so as a trader, you can apply filters and then you don't have to look at just what happens to be on a given terminal, but you can aggregate data from like, I don't know, five different terminals, filter it and only display what you want for certain markets and then get a better picture. Is that how that's it works? Exactly, that's exactly right. And in fact, it's um, it, it it's really easy to filter because it, the way the workflow works for most buy-side traders is that the portfolio manager will go through a bunch of choices, they'll build a portfolio or a series of orders, and then they will feed those down into their order management system, or OMS. And it's there that the execution traders will pull the, that information up into their screens and then decide how to action it. And what Algamy Alpha does is it dovetails neatly with the OMS, sucks in those actionable orders from the OMS, and it's with that, you're then able to click and filter accordingly. And so it is exactly as you say, it makes it simple for the execution trader to view all those different price feeds in one spot and be able to then say, okay, if I need a five-year BMW bond, I can click on that bond and now I see it on market access, TradeWeb, LiquidNet, uh, Bloomberg, and Neptune and as examples. And therefore, they can find out the best price and then go and try to trade it at that spot where they're you know, on that platform where they see the price occurring. Yeah, that sounds a lot more efficient. Um, the weird thing is why would uh, a bank not do everything it could to expose all of its bonds to the, to the market to, you know, max out its liquidity and uh, not have assets sitting there that are not being, you know, bought and sold and used. I can see on the trader side, this is a huge help, but why would, uh, why would there be any resistance to, uh, banks wanting you to look in all their closets and get everything out of there and you know, onto the market. Well, it's interesting because, in fact, I think the, the, the banks are looking for efficient ways to expose their, their um, positions to their key buy-side accounts. And the way they do it at the moment is typically one of three things. Either do it via 
um, a product called Neptune. So they'll feed in what are referred to acts, what are referred to as axes or uh, real cares that they have, positions that they want to unload or the shorts they want to cover. So they they will show those through something called Neptune. They will also probably publish similar interests um, to Bloomberg because Bloomberg is the, the tool that most everybody uses as well, or they will send out information directly or pick up the phone and call. So the banks will want all of that information to show to their clients. What tends to happen um, increasingly is as the buy side and the sell side have both become more technologically driven, uh, a bunch of that interaction, which used to take place via telephone, is now taking place on electronic venues. And so it, it's critical that everybody still gets to see all this stuff, but that they can filter it accordingly. So what we find is that, in fact, both the banks who are servicing those large asset managers, but increasingly the electronic trading platforms also want all that information to appear in a way which makes it as easy as possible for that buy side trader to interact with that data and to interact then with his ultimate liquidity provider. Are there assets, um, bonds, or other things that banks don't want to appear on all the markets that they don't want your your tool to be able to access? I mean, are people, uh, you know, does the law allow for um, certain trades to be hidden or only exist on certain markets? So uh, generally, there is no particular problem with anybody hiding things. It, it does, as a tool, it tends to lend itself mostly to the liquid end of the market. So the, the basics of the bond market are that unlike the equity markets, there's a lot of um, different issues. So as an example, I, I don't know, by last count, I'm going to guess that Apple Corporation had something, I'm going to guess, seven to ten different bond issues outstanding. They only have one common share outstanding. Equities tend to trade on exchanges. It's a it's a price you can see and you can trade at that price. Bonds don't don't tend to trade on exchanges and tend to trade very episodically. They they trade most notably in the first ten days after issuance, and then typically they go into um, buy side accounts and just stay there until maturity, unless of course there's either another issue by that same corporation, so then existing holders will trade out of the old and into the new perhaps, or if there's uh, credit-specific information on those bonds that comes into the market. So uh, an example would be um, when VW had the emissions crisis, when that was exposed, there was a lot of trading in legacy VW bonds. So if I think about the the fixed income market, the bonds that, that, um, that lend themselves most to our alpha product are those at the more liquid end of the market, um, those that, that trade with some degree of frequency. They may be the underlying inputs into ETFs, so fixed income exchange traded funds. Oftentimes we'll have these bonds as their underlying bonds. Um, it may be that these bonds appear in some sort of index. So again, passive investment would lead them to be traded often and rebalanced in portfolios fairly regularly. So those are the ones that, that tend to lend themselves. The ones that don't tend to be bonds which are illiquid in trade very infrequently. Um, and those, this, this probably works um, because, again, Neptune or Bloomberg, which are the other means by which people will get information out to the buy side, um, 
can be the channel through which these flow. It's just a matter of whether or not then the buy side trader is actually looking for these, but it would all flow into their alpha screens. And that's weird. I didn't know that bonds uh, tend to sit there once, you know, once they've been initially traded. Do you, do you think it's a good thing to increase liquidity in bonds or can you not force traders to want them and want to trade them more actively? Well, it's interesting. I, I think it's um, the key is actually we want we want liquidity in the bond market. So we want we want buyers and sellers to be able to find themselves um, with some ease. And the reason being is because when you can't find the other side of a trade, uh, the only way you induce a trade to occur then is you you scramble around and you have to change your price. And so that's ultimately detrimental to the um, the underlying investor. So. So as an example, if you have uh, a bond fund exposure in your 401k or in your retirement accounts, um, that asset manager that's managing the, that bond fund on your behalf, he's better served and you're better served ultimately as the end investor by having that liquidity easily sourced because then the price that that a bond is traded at, either as a buyer or a seller, is closer to a mid price. So there's no extreme swing in the price. Um, and so in that sense, I think we really want it. And what's interesting is there's been a, a lot of commentary in the bond markets, both in the United States and in Europe, as to how bond market liquidity has been impacted post-financial crisis. And much of the, the commentary has been that many participants see that that's been reduced. And part of that reduction in bond market liquidity has occurred because large banks, who were typically the liquidity provider, so they would either buy or sell and be the other side of the trade that the buy side account wants to execute. And then they would then match it off. They would warehouse those positions on their balance sheet, on a bank balance sheet, until they could find another buy side account to take them out. Those those banks have been constrained by regulation and cost in their capital positions and can no longer trade readily. So what we hope Algebi Alpha does, and we think that we're correct, is that it makes it easier to find that liquidity, therefore benefits both buyer and seller um, to to execute their trades closer to mid. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's kind of strange. I never knew that. Um, Since you said bonds are not on exchanges, uh, are they bought only by institutions or can individuals buy them? Or is that not your market? (laughs) No, no, no. They they can. um, Individuals can buy bonds, but typically, most of the bonds that, that we trade are large institutional bonds. They're, they are they come in large sizes, typically hundred thousand dollar minimum purchase sizes. Um, so they tend not to be bought directly by retail investors. Typically, retail investors where they do tend to play is in certainly in the United States at least is in the municipal bond market, and that's also a market which we cover. We are building feeds to to um, electronic venues for bond for um, municipal bond trading, which is the Muni Center and Bond Point. We, we don't have those uh, connections yet, but that's something that we're looking to develop in the near future. Yeah, if bonds really only sell quickly when they're first issued. Wouldn't that make um, at least the corporate side? Um, wouldn't it make it more likely that they would issue as many bonds as they could? Or issue them issue new ones periodically instead of focusing on liquidity for the existing ones because the new and exciting or the new and sexy is what sells. Sure. No. That look. That's a great question. And in fact, what you find is the largest um, corporate bond issuers in the market 
do tend to take an approach that's probably similar to that is that they have a regular schedule of issuance and they try to issue with some degree of frequency um, and they build what's referred to as a as a credit curve or a bond curve which is in other words just simply um, it, you know, having a bond that's due in three years, one that's due in five years, one that's due in seven, and one that's in ten, as an example. Um, what tends to happen in the bond market as well, though, is that corporate treasurers or CFOs also tend to issue bonds um, to suit particular liquidity needs. So, I don't know, let's say Company A is about to, I don't know, build a big office building here in London, as an example. Maybe they need $50 million to do that. Maybe they'll issue a private placement of $50 million, or maybe they are going to acquire another company and they need to fund, you know, part of it will be in, in stock and part of it will be in cash. So the cash part, they'll need to borrow maybe $500 million. So they'll issue a bond in that. So that tends to be how bond, how, how corporates issue bonds is they usually issue either according to a schedule or alternatively, for discrete need. Yeah, this seems like I don't know. It just seems like it would put companies into a um, a bad decision-making framework because I, I mean maybe I'm wrong, but if I was a company, I wouldn't want to issue long-term bonds. I would tend to issue really short-term, um, but that would impact the projects I can do and you know having to pay them back. You know, but I want that liquidity. I want that attention from the market. So if I issue a lot of short-term stuff, then I have to go issue more stuff to cover the old stuff. And it also, it seems <laughs> like it would tend to make me increase my corporate debt unnecessarily. I'd go hunting for projects just for the sake of activity. I don't, maybe this is all wrong, but. No, no, no. Look, you you, uh, you paint an interesting picture. What what tends to happen is that um, there is a need for, for uh, corporate treasurers and investor relations people to stay in front of the market so they can issue at those points in time when they need things um, one of the one of the questions is always if you don't issue what you need today so let's just say rather than borrow 500 million you borrow a hundred million today and you you're going to come back in six months or a year and borrow another and another and another the risk is that at that point in time that you come to borrow circumstances change and the liquidity isn't there. So maybe there isn't investor interest or alternatively the yield curve has shifted and so your borrowing cost goes up. So those are the those are the alternate factors that go into making those decisions by corporate treasurers or or some of the decisions that go into to impacting them. Yeah, I would think this would be kind of like the mortgage market. You know, if if the yield curve shifts, why wouldn't a company want to go out and uh you know, issue bonds at a, a lower coupon rate to take advantage of that and call back in the ones at a higher rate or, you know, it just, it just seems odd to me. I thought that the, the market would be a lot more active for bonds. Well, you know, and it is, it is in the new issue space. Um, and in fact, a lot of what you just described definitely occurs. So, um, you know, one would argue that we have been in a bond bull market for the last 30 years as nominal interest rates have come down from, in the United States at least, you know, the, the mid to high teens in I don't know, the late 70s down to uh, very, very low and have only just started to to slowly begin to creep up with a little help from the Federal Reserve. Um, so indeed, you've had a bunch of refinancings, you've had a huge splash of of debt come onto the market. And in fact, the last 10 years, seven to 10 years with 
quantitative easing and the policies both in the United States and in Europe, actually probably around the globe, you've seen an increase in private debt and government debt, largely reflective of those low interest rates. So you're absolutely right. So what's, um, is there a large effect that you think that the actual liquidity you're providing access to will have on the markets? Like what do you, um, what do you think is going to be the, the large net effect of what you're doing? So the, <laughs> the hoped um, impact is that what we do over time is two things. Number one, we, we drive down cost of transaction. So the frictional cost to trade. And that's important because if you think about what's happened between banks and asset managers, banks have been squeezed by price constraints pretty heavily over the last 10 years. And over the last probably two to three years, that wave towards um, cost constraint has impacted the buy side pretty heavily. And as an overlay to all of that, technology has begun to play a bigger part. So what what do we really hope? We hope that we can facilitate um, more efficient and better execution by the buy side trader with with less hassle, really. And that would be the that would be the key. I think the other thing is the product creates a big data lake on behalf of the buy side. So they take all these price feeds and for the first time ever they have a large structured data set that they can then interrogate for better trading decisions. And I think as we move forward in time, that will become increasingly important in order to create various metrics that will help those execution traders decide when to trade or how to trade with the least negative impact for their portfolios. I don't know, this is, I'm just you know thinking of all kinds of strange ideas, but is it even <laughs> legal for you to have, let's say, like a suggestion feature, like, I don't know, this week, uh, you're going to feature this part of the market for, just because you want to call attention to it. Are you able to do that? Or is it just purely like, you know, I submit a query and the information comes up and you don't push anything to me on the terminal? We we don't. But what's, what's interesting is some of the other things that we think about, and in fact, um, others in the market are thinking about as well, but is... Um, so if I'm sitting there and I'm trading a bond, and let's again, we'll just take a I don't know five-year auto, a, let's call it a BMW bond, and I can't find it, or alternatively, there are other bonds which perhaps offer greater yield, so better value, same rating, same industry, but better value. Um, what the software should begin to do is be able to see what you have traded in the past, so through your own records having those plugged into your Algamy Alpha terminal, plus the, the liquidity information that um, the client captures from the market, we should be able to then develop tools which help suggest other bonds that you could buy instead of that five-year BMW. Maybe it's a, a four and three-quarter year uh, Chrysler bond, as an example, or something, right? You could imagine a bunch of different um, parameters, but something that's close to what you had thought you were going to action, but might offer better value or greater liquidity in case you need to, you know, exit the position um, in 10 days time, because you know, you're going to get an outflow. So any of those things. So as I begin to think about where the market's going, we, we are looking at helping others to develop momentum indicators so we can push, you know, you should trade bond A over bond B at the moment, or alternatively, instead of buying bond B, you should buy bond C, or maybe you should consider C, D, and E. So all of these things um, 
become possible once you have that data lake and that front end screen to help you see the market. Yeah, I can see um, also your service being tied to news where it would look at, let's say, keywords in the news. And let's say there is something going on in the auto market, you know, new tariffs or whatever it is. And that brings up uh, all the bonds associated with that market because you know there's going to be activity there. Or maybe there would be an opportunity seeker function where you see activity, you know, extra activity in a certain sector and it brings up those markets and alerts the trader, hey, there's a lot going on for some reason in this market. You know, take a look at the bond markets and see what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think those are those are great ideas because, in fact, what I think you will find, some, some firms operate differently than others, but there are plenty of um, execution desks at large global asset managers that are across assets. So very hard for a, an execution trader who has to execute you know hundreds of trades over the course of a day to have good sense of always of exactly what's going on in all the markets, all the products he he applies. So you're right. If you had something which um, scrubbed a, a news feed um, that then picked up certain words, you could exactly do as you say. Say, ah, oh, gee, there's activity in this segment. Or maybe momentum indicators. You you pick up the trace feed, which is the, the FINRA feed in the United States that shows uh, the price of bonds that have traded in the market. And you could pick those up. Or in Europe, we have something called APAs that do the same. And so you're right. I think that's exactly where the world heads. And too, if you have um, a pretty extensive portfolio, I would think you'd want um, a function that watches those markets. You know, let's say, again, you hold a lot of, uh, I don't know, you said the auto market. Let's say you hold a lot of bonds in that market. You'd want to watch the news and see if there's any changes. You know, you might have to change your portfolio, buy extra, sell, readjust, that kind of thing. So I'm seeing how this would be very important to use. Well, that, you know, and, and it's interesting because that, that that highlights another element of it, which I think is is pretty exciting at the moment, at least from where I sit, which is, again, with, with technology becoming relatively inexpensive to develop, um, and I say relatively because, of course, it, it's looking back over 20 years, but is um, – you see application for some of these products beyond just the execution trader where it was originally developed uh, for and by, and now it moves up into the portfolio manager because they need to be able to see where the liquidity is in order to build a portfolio that's actionable or that will help them monitor the markets exactly as you've described. You could also see the tool having application um, via quantitative analysts because now they have this big data set that they can interrogate and build various tools on the backup. Or you can see it being utilized by a, a compliance officer. So we have something in Europe, which I believe will ultimately come to the United States, called best execution. And best execution regulations require the execution trader to show that he's gotten the best possible price for the end investor. In order to be able to do that, you kind of need to show the context in which that trader has traded. That can be done and then replayed any point in time for a compliance officer. So compliance officer questions, Trader Jones has executed a bond trade. Well, you know now the compliance officer doesn't have to take Trader Jones's um, word for it and you know the the screen printout of the three quotes he got on Bloomberg. He can, in fact, take a snapshot of what was playing through the Algamy Alpha terminal and see all the liquidity which was available in that bond 
you know, for three minutes, five minutes prior, you know, all the news feeds, everything else. So again, it, the the tool has tremendous application beyond its its originally designed purpose, and I think that's that's pretty fun. Yeah, all right, interesting. A couple more questions. Um, so, have you looked at the data that Algamy has been aggregating? Um, do you see anything that other people don't see because you have access to all this uh, this market data? across many markets. So actually you you hit on a really interesting thing for us because it turns out to be very sensitive to um both the the data providers but also our clients. So one of the things that's important is that we don't actually see the data. So what do we really do? We create a piece of visualization software and we've created a bunch of data scrubbers. So because we understand how the data comes in and we've then normalized those those feed points and how, I don't know, Bloomberg or alternatively how Neptune or any of the other um, data feeds, how they um, structure or um, call the various bits of the data, we then normalize that and then it feeds in. So we deploy a, a, a bit of software to the cloud and uh, the client then just gets their data vendors to plug into the back of that particular incidents of the cloud, and we don't see the data. The data remains a um, a supply and demand issue between the ultimate client of ours, which is the buy side, and the buy side's relationship with that data vendor. And it's important because uh, if we did see it, I think people would be very concerned. So some of the vendors would be concerned that we might step in and somehow disintermediate their relationships or the trading relationship of uh, market access, for example, which is a big credit trading, electronic trading venue, um, might be upset if I, if I were able to see and use their price information. So I'm not able to, but the end client is, and it's just as if that relationship stands still. Um, so we actually don't see the data. It makes sense. I guess it's yeah, probably for legal and for trust issues, or at least for trust exactly. issues. So that makes sense. Okay. Exactly. So what what's uh, in the pipeline for the next year or so? What's new that's coming that you're working on? So I, I think one of the other really exciting things that we're working on, so we're working, we continually um, address new data feeds within Alpha. So um, other, other electronic trading venues, um, trying to connect them. So that's one, and that, that will continue to be a focus for us. I think the other really exciting thing that we're working on is we're working on um, on custody data. And custody data is pretty exciting for us. So um, we have as a shareholder, as I mentioned, Euroclear, which is the largest custodian here in Europe. Um, and together with um, Bank of New York Mellon and HSBC, three, arguably three of the largest custodians in their respective geographies, we are exploring how to help them um, monetize their custody data. In a way which is um, is not intrusive to the end holder of the asset. So typically, what happens is a is a um, pension fund will ha- instruct a custodian to hold assets on their behalf, and then they will instruct an asset manager to manage those assets. So, in an example, let's call it Alliance Bernstein manages assets on behalf of the I don't know New G- New Jersey. Uh, public em- employee retirement fund. Those assets are likely to be held in custody by someone like Bank of New York Mellon, or in, if they are euro bonds, 
uh, Euroclear, or if maybe there's some Asian bonds in there, maybe it's HSBC. Um, as we discussed earlier in the conversation, oftentimes bonds will trade initially at the front end of their existence, and then they'll go away into a portfolio and stay there until maturity. And what we're hoping to do is create an ability to search the database, the custody database, buy a buy side account. So let's just say, again, Alliance Bernstein says, I want a five-year auto bond, but I don't want these three things. And so they search the database. The database comes back and it says, okay, there are five holders of, of the, this particular bond you're looking for, um, and they're located at these custodians. Again, that that information stays anonymous at that point in time. But then, um, in this example, Alliance Bernstein could initiate a an inquiry to one of those holders saying, gee, I'd like to buy those bonds at a price of one oh one and a half. That then would engage that account if they wanted to, um, and that account would then elect to operate through either HSBC or Boney to action those bonds. And so you would you would hopefully be able to generate a trade which might otherwise not occur because the the original portfolio manager has either held on to the bonds, forgot they're in his portfolio, or alternatively, never had reason to trade them because there was never a price available. And now, because we can link a potential buyer to that to that potential seller, we think that we can effectively unlock a bunch of latent liquidity in the bond market. That's at least the premise. So we're working with, with those three parties to do that. And then I think the other thing that, um, that we're excited about is in it is working with another one of our shareholders, which is Euronext. They're a big uh, European exchange operator, and they have an MTF, a multilateral trading facility in Europe that trades bonds. It's called Synapse, and we provided the core technology to that, and we're working with them to try to grow that network as well. So those are the the big things in the future for us. Yeah, that's that's big. And, you know, I'm sure this would probably go to press release, but what's the potential amount of uh, liquidity that could be unlocked by your system? <laughs> that is the $64,000 question. So the, the stats that I think everybody likes to throw around is, is I think between those three custodians alone, um, Euroclear, BNY Mellon, and HSBC, I think I'm right in, in recalling that it's something on the order of $76 trillion of custody assets. Now, that crosses all assets. So that's equities, government bonds, uh, corporate credit. I, I think it, it's probably, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to think that um, the amount of liquidity that we could unlock would be, I don't know, 20% of that number, 15% of that number. But either way, it's a large number if we get it right. Uh, at least that's our hope. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah. I mean, uh, the tool sounds really great. It sounds really interesting. And, uh, I think it'll be of interest to listeners. So what's the best way for, for people or institutions to get in contact if they have questions? I think, um, I think, I believe there is a contact page on our website. So feel free to go there and um, and request a demonstration of the product. Okay, so it's algomi.com, algomi.com, right? That's correct. Okay. Well, Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been interesting. Well, Richard, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast 
post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.